All right, so much good stuff going on. It's fun to be a part of it all. Uh, we are back in the book of Genesis. You can open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9 to follow along. Uh, last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday. We had Pentecostal Santa Claus preaching to us last Sunday. I hope you enjoyed the ministry of Mark Lewis. Uh, does anybody remember what he taught us? What did he teach us? Come on, hands up, high five Jesus, testify. So keep that up, keep the energy going. Uh, but we're in, we're in an interesting section. A couple of times I've told you as we've been through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we've been in a section that I like to call um, in the category of the Bible can be weird sometimes, okay? So just another warning, the Bible can be weird sometimes, and we'll find one of those spots today. But uh, we're in the second last week of this series in Genesis 1 to 11. Uh, if you're nice to me, maybe sometime next year, we'll pick it up in Genesis 12 and keep going. Genesis kind of breaks up into four major sections, uh, but only if you're nice. So, but for today, uh, we're finishing these last two weeks, Genesis 1 to 11. Um, so Genesis 6 through 9 is kind of a sub-story within the larger story of where we've been. It zooms in on the life of one individual and his family, uh, the guy we know as Noah. We're introduced to him, actually, in the genealogy we read in Genesis 5. And if you remember, that genealogy went something like this. A guy was born, he lived a certain amount of years, he had some kids, then he lived some more years, and then he died. And then his kids had some kids, and they lived some more years, and they died, and they died, and they died, and everybody died. It was a very depressing genealogy. But the idea was meant to remind us that the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden introduced death into the world, and now all of humanity is caught in this cycle of sin. But in the genealogy, there were two, excep two exceptions to the cycle. The first exception was a guy named Enoch. We're told he walked with God, and then he was no more. God took him away which just means he skipped death. He walked with God, he was in close relationship with God, and God just took him straight to heaven. And the second exception was Noah. We're also told that Noah walked with God. He was righteous in his generation. He was blameless. And God saved him from death as well in a different way. God was sending the flood because the whole earth had been corrupted. He was sending the flood, but he saved Noah and his family. He gave Noah instructions to build a boat, which was kind of a little Eden that, that was riding on the waves to save him and his family from destruction. But the story continues. We're still kind of in Noah's story, and it continues afterwards. There's this reboot of creation. There's this new creation. Noah and his family jump off the boat. They start again, and where we left off the story was where God made a covenant with Noah. A covenant is a relational commitment. God said, I'm never going to flood the earth again to wipe out all of humanity. And God actually admitted that he knew that humanity still was full of evil intentions. He knew that humanity was still going to mess up and still be like this. And so it was almost like he's saying, I'm going to be tempted in the future to do again what I just did, but I promise not to do it. So God relents at destroy. He knows that the long-term solution to human sin is not to wipe us out every few years. And so he gives the rainbow as the sign of the covenant. Noah and his family have a fresh start in a new creation. Now, let's take a breath and remind ourselves, Genesis has been training us. It's been teaching us how to read the Bible. It's been teaching us how to watch for patterns, 
Or the illustration I've used, notes in the musical score of the scriptures. So here we have a new creation. We have a proto-human family that is a first human family from which all the other families will come. And what did we see happen in the first creation with the first proto-human family? Well, we saw that they lived in a garden full of fruit. There was a malevolent character that, introduced, that we were introduced to that deceived the family. They were trying to usurp the authority of the family and the authority of God. The humans made a bad decision related to the fruit in the garden. The decision led to shame and nakedness. And there was a curse announced because of that bad decision. And all the generations from then on were impacted by the curse. That a fair characterization of what happened in the first creation. So, let's see what happens in the new creation, right? Spoiler alert, okay? Let's see what happens. Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem, or sorry, Ham was the father of Canaan. This is an ominous comment, okay? He was the father of Canaan. And if you haven't read forward in the Bible, you go, what does this mean? Who's Canaan? Why is it important? But when Jewish people read the Old Testament, they didn't just read it once through and they said, I guess I've read the Bible. It was designed to be read over and over and over again because the wisdom of the scriptures is designed to be given to us slowly. And so you read forward and you see this kid Canaan and his descendants, and then you read back and you go, oh, this connection to Ham. There's an important clue the author is giving to us in who this Canaan is. It's kind of like in Matthew chapter 10, where Matthew lists the 12 disciples, and the last disciple he lists, he says, Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus. And you're like, spoiler alert, Matthew, we haven't got to that part of the story yet right? But it's this ominous, it's this connection to a later part in the story. So if you're a brand new reader, who's Canaan? But if you know, you realize that the, the author here is trying to connect Ham to this serpenty type character that shows up later in the story. If Ham is Canaan's dad, then he must be a part of this serpent image as well. Verse 19, these were the three sons of Noah and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. In Genesis 2, where are we told that Adam came from? The dirt. And then in Genesis 3, when Adam sinned, what did God tell Adam he would go back into? The dirt. Here, Noah is told to be a man of the soil. He's a new Adam. He's connected back to this first image bearer. He's a man of the soil. He plants a vineyard, which is a garden full of what? Fruit. Okay, all these images are flooding back. There's all these parallels that are being made here. Where's this going? Verse 21, he drank some of its wine. He became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Noah might be the most committed alcoholic in the history of the world. It takes a long time to go from a world completely fresh out of a flood, no vineyards in existence, to plant a vineyard, cultivate it, weed, water, grow, develop grapes, crush the grapes, ferment the wine, and drink the wine. That's a long, Noah didn't just go around the corner to the liquor store and get a bottle. He took a long time. He was committed to this bender. He gets drunk, and what happens 
when he does something inappropriate with the fruit of the garden, he gets naked. Okay, all these connections. When Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the garden, what happened? They went, we're naked. They realized that they were exposed. The same image is here. Noah does something inappropriate with fruit. He gets naked in his tent. Now, uh, Leanna, who is leading worship today, she contacted me this week and she said, Pastor Dave, tell me what your sermon is about so I can select a set list for worship. And I, I thought, do you have any worship songs about getting drunk and sleeping naked in your tent? Like, do we need to, you know, have a country music Sunday or something like this? I'm not sure what to give you. The Bible can be weird sometimes, okay? This is what I'm talking about. And it gets weirder. Here's the point I'm trying to get at as I'm, as I'm highlighting all the connections to the first creation account. Uh, I'm, try, I'm trying to highlight the fact that we're looking at another fall of humanity. This is a fall narrative. It's a sin narrative. Uh, there's a new garden. There's new sinners. But there's the same problems. Humanity is still stuck in the pattern of sin. There's evil in our hearts that has not yet been removed. So we eat the forbidden fruit. Adam and Eve did nothing that you or I would not have done, or every other human in existence has not done. We have all, in our own way, reached for the forbidden fruit, done something inappropriate in the garden of God, and it has led to our shame and our exposure in God's sight. We're in the same cycle. Noah's story is just emphasizing it. You can have a fresh start. You can have a new beginning. But if you're not trusting in God, walking with God, still we fall. So we took, he took the fruit and his sinful nature was exposed. Again, Genesis is the story that makes sense of our story. Why is the world the way it is? Why are we the way we are? Why are people so messed up and broken and make the decisions we make? Why do we constantly fail and falter? And it's not just other people who fail. I fail. And I don't just fail others. I fail myself. I set up standards for myself that I can't live up to. Why are we like that? Genesis examines the human condition and exposes it before us. We're stuck in a cycle of sin and death, and there isn't a human problem. Or pardon me, there isn't a human solution to the problem. We need a Savior. We need a God of covenant. We need a God who will come to us in our weakness, in our brokenness, and provide a way for salvation. So there's no literal snake in this story like there was in the first garden, but the serpent does show up just in a different form than he did in the first garden. Remember, we were told in the garden that there would be two lineages— there would be the lineage that comes from Eve, that, that one of her seed, one of her descendants would come to be a savior to stomp the head of the serpent. But we were also told there'd be a lineage that comes from the serpent, and that the lineage of Eve and the lineage of, serpent, of the serpent would be at odds. They would be fighting each other through time. But one day, the lineage from Eve would stomp the head of that serpent. So we should expect, as we read forward in the story, for this serpenty line to continue to rear its ugly head. So here's what happens when Noah passes out in his tent. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, just a reminder, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. This is where it gets weird. The translators of the New Living Translation, which I've been using, make it sound pretty innocent, 
but it's not. It sounds, when you just read it, it sounds like, you know, uh, when, when you're changing in your bedroom and your kid bursts in for whatever, you know, reason, the millionth question they have that day, and they see you getting changed and they run outside, I saw daddy's bomb, you know, and it's just like this innocent, whatever, it happens, okay, you forget to lock the door sometimes, and the kids do that. But that's not what's happening here. There's something much more nefarious at work. The phrase, saw his father naked, is a figure of speech or a euphemism for something sinister. At the very least, at the very least, what it's talking about is that Ham was publicly shaming his dad in front of his brothers. But at worst, he was doing something shameful to his naked father or potentially to his mother. His father's nakedness might be... uh, um, a figure of speech to refer to uh, Noah's wife. Or some speculate that maybe Ham brought in a pair of scissors into the tent, if you get what I'm trying to say. The nature of Ham's actions is why, as you'll see in a minute, Noah lashes out against Ham's descendants. Ham did something that impacted Noah's own ability to experience God's blessing of fruitfulness and multiplication So Noah curses Ham's blessing of fruitfulness and multiplication. It doesn't mean what Noah did was right. It's just telling us what happened. The big idea here isn't necessarily exactly what happened in the tent. What Ham was doing was trying to overthrow his father as family patriarch. He was trying to usurp the authority of his father. He was trying to take over the family. His actions were a power move a move to publicly assert his dominance in the family. It's like the story of King David and Absalom. And and King David was on Pastor Peter's mind this morning a couple different times. But when Absalom, King David's son, pushed David off the throne, he tried to usurp power, David left the city. The first thing Absalom did on top of the palace was he slept with David's concubines publicly. It's a power move. It doesn't make it right. The Bible's just saying what happened. But in that culture and in that time, it was a way to assert authority and dominance over a group of people. Absalom was doing it, and Ham's doing something similar as a way to try to take over patriarchy of the family. Whatever Ham does, he then went and declared this to the brothers to make his dominance public. He is the serpent in this garden. It's a serpenty move. In the garden, the snake was trying to dethrone the human rulers of the world that he was trying to, as a creature, he was trying to place himself on top of in authority over the humans who were supposed to be in authority over creatures. Similarly, Satan tried to assert his dominance over Jesus in the desert when he said, just worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. He's trying to take a position that was not his in the first place. That's what Ham is doing. He's living out as the manifestation of the serpent in Noah's day. Same old tricks, new form. Verse 23, but Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. Like God did for Adam and Eve, Shem and Japheth took in a garment. They walked in backwards. They didn't want to see anything. They covered their father's shame. They covered his nakedness. So we get this contrast. Whatever actually happened in the tent, 
The emphasis is on the contrast between the actions of Ham and the actions of the two brothers. Japheth and Shem are acting like God. They are are covering human nakedness and shame. Ham is acting like the serpent, exposing human nakedness and shame. Japheth and Shem are being revealed as a part of the godly lineage of Eve and their son Seth. Ham is being revealed as the ungodly, serpenty lineage of Cain, the murderer of his brother. From the lineage of Seth will come a savior who will stomp the head of the serpent. From the lineage of Cain comes the serpent. So we're watching these two lineages generations later fulfilling God's prophecy from Genesis 3 that they would battle and be at odds. So this is the pattern we're watching. A garden full of fruit, inappropriate use of the fruit leading to nakedness, a serpenty deceiver and usurper. What's missing from the original fall narrative is the curse. And here it comes. Verse 24, When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. Cursed be Canaan. That's why we were told earlier he was the father of Canaan. Cursed be your son. Lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. Canaan will be under a curse. It's amazing how the Bible weaves all this stuff together as you continue reading. Canaan is announced as the future manifestation of the lineage of the serpent, which will be under God's curse. One day Canaan will be stomped by the lineage of Seth. Of course, the ancestors of Canaan were the Canaanites. If you know your biblical history, after the Israelites escape from Egypt, they go into the promised land, and who's there? It's the Canaanites. It's the ancestors of Canaan, those who are in the lineage of the serpent. And what happens there is the, the images are similar to the flood. There's a flood of God's justice to stomp out the Canaanites who have been bringing oppression and blood and violence to the land, and God comes in to judge the Canaanites. Oof. It gets uncomfortable. These are difficult passages to read and to understand, but we see how the Bible is weaving this story together. Why would an entire people group be cursed because of one evil person? Is it really justice to stomp out the ancestors of one serpenty guy? Here's the thing, and we need to remember this. Canaan's curse is not a conviction. Canaan's curse is not something that is attached just to an ethnic line or a certain people group or geography. Canaan's curse relates not to a bloodline, but it relates to a spiritual lineage. It relates to all those who make the decision to follow in the lineage of the serpent instead of making the decision to follow in the lineage of Eve. It's all those who decide to to rebel against God, to walk from Him, to assert power, to practice oppression and injustice. All of us who have followed that same path are in the lineage of the serpent and under Canaan's same curse. It's not just a specific family line. And we know this for many reasons. In Genesis 12, as the story continues, we get introduced to Abraham, and Abraham is told, I will bless you, and I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing to all nations. 
And when God says all nations, he doesn't qualify it by saying except for the Canaanites. When he says all nations, he means all nations, which means including the Canaanites. Through you, I will bless the Canaanites. But he says the qualification for blessing is those who bless you, I will bless. Those who align themselves with God's plan, those who align themselves with God's goodness, those who align themselves with the way God designed the world to work will experience the blessing that God gave to Abraham. The curse, in other words, can be reversed. We also know, as you read the story, that God deliberately and intentionally and regularly used Canaanites to bring about his good purposes in the world. Rahab, the Canaanite, lived in Jericho. She became an Israelite as she recognized God's hand on his people. She blessed them. She received the blessing. And guess what? Rahab is listed in Matthew chapter 1 as an ancestor of Jesus. So literally, the Canaanite legacy, the Canaanite lineage, the Canaanite blood from Ham turns into Jesus' own blood. The same is true for Ruth, the Moabite. Moab was one of the worst enemies of Israel, but Ruth, again, was a blessing to God's people, and she received the blessing. Once again, she was the great, great, great something grandmother of Jesus. So it had nothing to do with ethnicity as much as it had to do with spiritual lineage. Which spiritual lineage are you in? Are you in the lineage of of Eve and Seth, or in the lineage of the serpent. The curse on Canaan represented the curse on a certain way of living and a certain way of engaging with God in the world. It wasn't a curse on a certain ethnicity, geography, or family. It was a curse on the spiritual lineage of the serpent, a lineage anyone can join, and a lineage anyone can detach themselves from. God's blessing is available to everyone, regardless of nationality or family tree. God's plan is to bless all nations. And thank God he has, because there's a whole bunch of former Canaanites in this room, aren't there? I am one of them. We are all former Canaanites because we've recognized. You know, the only way to enter into God's kingdom, the only way to have the the gospel applied to your life is to recognize that you don't deserve it. That's the access point. The access point to joining the lineage of Seth, to joining the lineage of God, is to recognize that you're a Canaanite and don't deserve it. And immediately you become qualified. And thank God that that's the case, because the rest of us would be exiled and excluded otherwise. At any moment, any Canaanite in this world can step out of Jericho and into the promise. You can leave Moab and join the family of Jesus. Apart from God, we are under a curse, but there is a door into blessing. His name is Jesus. And he says himself, I am the door. We get access through him. He is the good shepherd calling sheep from all over the place into his pen. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets access to life and eternity and the Father except through him. I praise God that we have a multi-ethnic family. Isn't that great? If you don't like being part of a multi-ethnic family, you don't need to worry about heaven because you won't be there. 
But heaven is a multi-ethnic family. All nations, all tongues, all tribes together as one worshiping the Lord. I love practicing that with my APA family. There is no lineage, no family line, no ethnicity that is excluded. All are included because all can gain access through Jesus. Now here's how our passage ends. And we realize that these last three chapters, we've literally still been in the middle of the genealogy of Genesis 5. Because it just narrowed in on Noah's life, and now it concludes the account of his life like this. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. So Noah, who had been a blameless one, he had been righteous, he had walked with God, he actually walked away from that. And he took the forbidden fruit, which led to death. And that's the destiny of each one of us apart from Jesus. Not just physical death, but eternal death. Noah wasn't the savior of humankind that some may have hoped he would be. He was another one of us, flawed and imperfect, who needed a savior. Let me bring one last point home. Our actions have a generational impact. You saw me almost lose it just by giving a letter to a baby today. And I think I just have a sensitive father's heart. I got three kids, 12 and under. But every action we take in our generation has a generational impact, far beyond what we often imagine. There's the famous quote from one of my favorite movies, Gladiator. Russell Crowe's character says, what we do in life echoes in eternity. But it's not just in eternity, it's, it's in this generation and the next generation and the one after that. What we do now echoes in the lives of others today and in generations to come, like throwing a rock in a pond of water, the ripples spread wide. Ham's actions affected generations of his descendants. He set in motion a way of living for his kids and grandkids and beyond that repeated a cycle of sin and violence and oppression that filled the whole land and culminated to a point where God actually had to deal with an entire geographic area, all from the legacy of one man's actions, one man joining the lineage of the serpent. Look what we see in Genesis 10, verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. So Ham's descendants included all the violent and oppressive Canaanites. It also included Egypt, who was, which was the nation that held in captivity the nation of Israel as slaves for 400 years. Verse 8, Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalna in Shinar. Babylon becomes the symbol in the rest of the Bible for everything that's wrong in the world. It becomes a symbol for oppression and violence and death. It's set up as the city of, of the serpent. It's set up as the city of death. It's the beast and false prophet and, and antichrist all in one through the scriptures. It's set up in stark contrast to the city of God. And it all came through the lineage of Ham. 
Nimrod went on and founded Assyria, a nation known in history for their terrible torture devices, the nation that invented crucifixion. He built Nineveh, the the city that the prophet Jonah hated so much, he would rather jump out of a boat and be eaten by a fish than go there and preach that they might be saved. This was the lineage and the legacy of just one man and his decisions, a trajectory he set his family on. Your decisions, my decisions, can either bring blessing or they can bring curses to our family and those in our sphere of influence. Our actions bring blessing or they bring curses on the future of the church. What will our kids' generation and our grandkids and our great-grandkids' generations say about the legacy of the church today? I'm saying that as an amoral statement. I'm just saying something to meditate on. What will they say? What do you want them to say? Will they say, man, they really messed things up, and it's a slow and steep rebuild from here on out? Or will they say, man, I'm so glad they lived with generosity and grace and love, and they built something upon which we can continue to grow and thrive? The good news is we can choose either to follow the legacy of Ham and Canaan or we can choose to break free of the curse in the image of Rahab and Ruth and join the legacy of Jesus. Jesus came to break the curse. He came to break the curse. It's possible for the curse of our lives to be broken because Jesus took every curse upon the cross. With him, the curse died. And when we look to him, When we put our trust in him, when we give our sins to him, the curse is broken in our life. Your curse does not need to be a conviction either. Listen, some, some people need to hear this because your parents passed on a curse to you. Your family passed on a curse to you. Through the decisions they made, the actions they took, the, tr- the way they treated you or the example they set, they passed on a curse to you but you don't need to bear that curse. Nor do you need to pass that curse on. That curse can be broken in Jesus' name. And you can start a new legacy. You know, I I come from generations of Christians. I'm thankful that someone along the line put their trust in Jesus, and they've passed on a historical blessing. Most of you know that my grandpa pastored this church many years ago led the construction of the North Auditorium building, has passed on a legacy in this church and in my life. On the other side, I have many people of faith in my family. Most of my aunts and uncles know the Lord. It's amazing. It's a huge blessing. But for some of you, you're the first. You've broken a curse. And you have the opportunity to be that patriarch or matriarch that's going to pass on a blessing that could ripple for generations and generations. What an amazing opportunity you have to start something fresh, to join the family of Jesus and pass on a blessing instead of a curse. You have the opportunity to start a new legacy. As a church, we have the opportunity to decide what our legacy is going to be. We can't control how other churches act We can barely control how we act, but we can make decisions. We can make decisions that will be good for our community, 
that would be good for the kids who are over there learning about Jesus right now? What are we going to pass on to them? That's the choice we get to make. What an opportunity we have. We have a God who will pour out everything needed for us to pass on a blessing. So as we close today, the band's going to come back up. I want to close in prayer and and just lead in some, some thoughtfulness here both as lead you as an individual, but also as a church, as a corporate, as a corporate body, meditating on and praying through what kind of legacy do we have an opportunity to pass on to those who come after us? And asking Jesus to come and break whatever curse we are struggling with so that we no longer have to deal with it and so that we don't have to pass it on to those who come behind. So would you stand with me? We're just going to pray offer ourselves to Jesus.